Brittany, are you a serial phone necromancer? Am I a what? Excuse me? (laughs) Are you, like me, a serial phone necromancer? You know, because necromancers, they like bring people or things back to life from the dead. I thought it was like a really fancy way of saying, like, I bring my phone to bed. Well, no, not necessarily. Uh, But yeah, I I realized uh, I'm that bitch who always lets my phone die. And then I plug it back in to bring it back to life. But uh, I have no excuse. I don't leave the house. I'm never further than like 10 feet from a plug. I know, and you've even shared that information before, and I... You let your phone die. That's just as disrespectful as turning it off. Yeah, well, you know. Disrespectful as in to people like me who call you four times a day and want you to answer every single time. I plug it in usually when it's like, oh, I'm dead. And I'll be like, oh no, what am I going to do with my life? But yeah, so I just, I needed to get that off my chest that, hi, my name is Tyler. I'm a serial phone necromancer. Well... Hello, everyone. This is Blood and Wine. I'm Brittany, and I don't ever let my phone die. I guess I already introduced myself, so I don't need to. But yeah, Blood and Wine, that's us. <laughs> Which I'm pretty sure we didn't do that in the last episode, come to think of it. But you guys know oh, who we are. in combo with the new intro music? Maybe they didn't. Yeah, no, we were really like, hey, oh, no, we did. We were like, it's still us. It's Blood and Wine. Whatever. This is irrelevant. We should talk about today's episode. Not last week. Let's not live in the past. Let's just look forward to the future. But before we do that, let's talk about Patreon. Gotta take a pit stop before you get to the destination. Destination future, I guess. So if y'all haven't, you should definitely head over to our Blood and Wine Patreon. Check it out. If you are sitting there craving more content, if you are like, ugh, I wait every week for the episode, I listen to it on Tuesday, and then I have to wait another week. Head over to Patreon, where we have 50-something murder minis um, that are Patreon-exclusive. There's also other benefits, such as being able to direct an episode, uh, which, you know, last couple episodes, we did director picks. So if you're like, ooh, I have an idea. I want my my idea to be the episode. I want to be a director. Head over to Patreon um, and join the join the Blood & Wine family. While you're at it, be sure you have subscribed to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, uh, follow us on Spotify, follow us on Pandora, just whatever your podcast listening platform of choice is, be sure you've subscribed or followed so you get notifications for all of our new episodes. What do the other podcasts say when they do that? I feel like all the time I hear, like, check us out on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Ba-ba-ba-ba-ba. It's a National Geographic podcast, I guess. Apparently. My God. <laughs> is that song just constantly stuck in your head? Yeah, it's basically the sound of the undertow of my brain. Oh. Mine is probably like an sync song. I know. <laughs> Okay, Tyler, what's the topic we're going to be talking about today? So we're kind of bringing it back to the classics a little bit. I say that because this is a topic we've visited before, 131 episodes ago. It's been quite a while. Yes, so if y'all can remember, or if you can't remember, and, you know, have a finger to scroll back in time, uh, our third episode, we covered Poison. 
And we're like, you know what? That There are so many interesting cases of poisonings. We got to do it again. It's been long enough. It's been long enough. It's time for a second second round. Second round of poisons. Ooh. Except don't don't drink your second round of poisons. That sounds sounded wrong. And Maybe bad. don't even drink the first. <laughs> Please don't drink poison. But yeah, in doing the research for this, one I realized if you search for like murders by poison, get ready to learn some like 18th century nonsense because I feel like everyone was poisoning everyone back then. They're like, well, he slided me by looking the other way in the street, so I put arsenic in the pasta. And I was about to and say, wine. it's it's always like the arsenic and the rat poison in the food. Slowly like, killing was arsenic, over time. Was arsenic that easy to buy? Is it like going to the store and being like, oh, I need to pick some cornflakes, some bananas, a tub of arsenic? Isn't rat poison arsenic? I don't know. I've never, I, I've never bought rat poison. I don't even know where you'd buy rat poison. I mean, I don't know if Walmart, you can anymore. The grocery store? Yeah, I mean, that's why arsenic, I feel like, was so easy to get. People would just go buy rat poison. Did everyone used to have rats? Everyone still has rats, Tyler. I don't think I've ever seen a rat outside <laughs> of New York City. Uh, I was about to say, it's because you've never lived in New York, but there you go. Yeah. Those rats are like the size of cats. Yes, I remember seeing one that I thought was a cat at, like, on the subway tracks, and I was like, just kidding, that's a rat. <laughs> Did you have a, was it you who told me about, like, the rat's tails getting in knots? It's actually yes, really sad. Yes, the rat king. It's really sad, actually. I mean, yeah, it is. They're really, like. They're kind of cute. But they're also really nasty. <laughs> I mean, those any, are. like, well, I mean, yeah, but it's an animal in New York. <laughs> Most of them are <laughs> nasty. I mean, but anyway, this is not a rat podcast. I don't even know if that's a thing. If it is, link it below. Let us know and we'll listen to your rat podcasts. It's on the National Geographic list. Oh my god. Rats around the world. (laughs) This rat is Stephanie. She just went out to get food for her family. And now she's heading back in. She lives in the Dragon Flats borough of Brooklyn, New York. I don't know. I don't know what kind of podcast documentary personification that is, but... Um, that sounded like Unsolved Rat Mysteries. <laughs> you know, <laughs> honestly, I I bet Netflix just picked that up and it's going to be a new series we see in a couple months. <laughs> Can I have my wine now? I think we both need our wine right now. <laughs> what wine are you drinking today? I picked the 2017 Vintage Undivided Chardonnay from France. My attention is undivided. (laughs) So this one is a little bit more expensive than what I normally spend. It was $16 from Total Wine. But this bottle... Okay, Miss Bougie. Well, this bottle just spoke to me. It's a really pretty bottle. I know. It's like this... um, It also says the Braveheart on it. Also, I mean... That's what you get when you buy an expensive bottle. They they talk. They put speakers in it. So, yeah. <laughs> well, but so it's like almost like a really pretty ornate book looking. I don't know. Yeah. So this is a wine that has a beautiful yellow, like it's a pale yellow color. There's an excessive bouquet of dry fruits as well as woody notes. 
It's full flavored on the palate because it is a Chardonnay. We've talked about how Chardonnay is your heavier white. And it's also very round and well-balanced. With white wines, ideally, you drink between 45 and 50 degrees Fahrenheit. And they're really good with seafood and salad. So a lot of these things we've talked about a lot. But one thing in particular that makes French Chardonnays different is they're unoaked. So there's not that moment of it fermenting in an oak barrel, like from a California Chardonnay. So it's not going to have those buttery notes. It's a lot more floral. Yeah, well, French Chardonnays are the ones that I like because, for me, the oaky and butteriness in an American Chardonnay, no thank you. The bottle on this one, it doesn't specify. I just know most French Chardonnays don't use the oak barrels. But I think if I'm tr- I'm trying to channel Mama right now, um, and I think it's like Sir Lee, which is a process, can also give wines this buttery, oaky note. I don't know if that's right. We'll see. But when I taste it, I'll let you guys know if I'm getting more like floral or fruit or if there are some oaky undertones. Nice. <laughs> Every time I talk about oaky and wine, I think of Michael Scott when he says this, ah, this is a white with oaky afterbirth. And I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, on that note, Tyler, what wine are you drinking? Are you not even going to open yours? Oh, just kidding. Absolutely. <laughs> so this is a screw top. Sounds like you broke someone's neck. <laughs> I did. Okay, this said pale yellow. It's that, definitely yellow. And I <laughs> I guess I was picturing more of like pale yellow, like straw, like a Sauvignon Blanc. This is yellow. This is light apple juice. Yeah. It smells oaky. Hmm. And melon. Okay. Ooh, I'm, I'm really intrigued. Tyler, please uh, tell me about your wine so I can drink mine. I mean... What wine are you having? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the feeling's mutual. I've been waiting for you so I could open mine. Uh, I am having the 2019 Sauvignon Republic Sauvignon Blanc from Marlboro, New Zealand. I needed, I was feeling a New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc. I saw this one at Trader Joe's. Apparently you can get it elsewhere too. It's not just a Trader Joe's one when I was looking up and I was like, oh, cool. But yeah, it was like eight bucks or so, so not bad at all. This wine, it's described as like a crisp, tropical Sauvignon Blanc with gooseberry notes, herbal grassiness, and a restrained minerality. It has these juicy flavors, this crisp acidity, and a long finish, which I thought that was interesting because you don't usually get a long finish from a Sauvignon Blanc. Right. Um, And obviously it pairs great with all kinds of seafood, like sushi, all the things. And then when I was looking at reviews, people love this wine. I see that one at Trader Joe's all the time, and I can't tell you why I haven't picked it up. It's such a pretty bottle that really just stands out. It is, and it kind of, along the similar lines of your wine, how yours kind of looks like a book, Mine does too, but whereas yours is a book from like the 1880s and it's very like formal and nice, mine is one that's like a fever dream book cover from like 1978. 
Yeah, I know. I'm like reading Jane Eyre and you've got Fahrenheit 451 over there. Yeah. Uh, But most people in the reviews, I saw a lot of people mentioning grapefruit, lemongrass, some pineapple, and even passion fruit. Yum. Yum, yum, yum. I'm so excited. It is also screw top. I like that we both picked white for this episode. Oh my god, it smells so good. Wow, that is grapefruit. That is the smell of a good grapefruit candy. I love grapefruit candy. Like those high chews. Mm. Yes. Ooh, it looks uh thick. W- when you were pouring it. Like viscous? Yeah. Oh. Well, I guess we'll see if I'm drinking wine syrup. Ooh, mine's Kinda. opening up to more fruitiness. Well, I think without further delay, cheers. Cheers. It is viscous. Well, this one's oaky, but not like butter. It's oaky. Wow. This is the first Sauvignon Blanc I think I've ever had that on the like scale of light to bold, it's kind of in the middle, maybe even on the bolder side. And I've I've never had a boldish Sauvignon Blanc. They're always like the lightest of the light. Do you like it though? Yeah, it's very, it is not your typical Marlboro Sauvignon Blanc. It's a lot fruitier, but it's it's that grapefruit, and I can definitely see pineapple and passion fruit as well. And it's not very acidic. It doesn't have that, like, crisp, sharp acidity. Interesting. Mmm. It has the slightest amount of residual sugars in it, so it's not sweet by any means. It is still very much, you know, a dry wine, but there's a little bit, and it works with the fruitier flavors. It kind of balances. This is good. I'm glad one- 13%. Yeah, I'm glad one of us finally tried it. Oh, let me see what my percentage is. Mine's also 13%. Hey. So like I was saying, this one is oaky, but it's not, it's not like super- buttery and like you say tyler it kind of feels like oil it's not that but it does have oaky notes but then there's so much like melon and apple and also Uh not sweet it does have a pretty long finish it's a very full wine it's heavy in my mouth it is very heavy on my tongue i can tell there's there's a lot going on this is not your light crisp white wine This is one of those white wines for red wine drinkers. Nice. I am extremely happy with this. This is probably one of the best Chardonnays I've had in a while. You know how much I used to drink and love Chardonnay, and I've moved away from it. This one's bringing me back. Nice. Yeah, I am a big fan of this. I I don't know if I would say it's my favorite New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc, but it's just because it's so different, it doesn't feel like that same kind of wine this one is a dangerous one though this is the kind of bottle that you bring to the beach or the pool and you look up and you're like oh shit i downed that bottle in 45 minutes (laughs) maybe we should not tell people how quickly we drink wine just kidding you guys all know you listen to us every week they listen to us but also (laughs) this one's extraordinary in that way well i 
feel like this has been an extremely successful wine selection for both of us. And Oh, absolutely. We, like, I picked an old love, you picked a current love, and we both found new things in both of them. We found love in a hopeless place. <laughs> Let's not get that far. Just kidding. These wines are wonderful. Tyler, I think I'm ready to talk about poison, though. Um, I mean, a little bit of a hard shift. You know, I will say, when researching this topic, and also, you know, having wine on the brain, I kept, I could not get that scene from American Horror Story Cult out of my head. Okay, I'll admit it. I haven't seen that season. What scene are you talking about? It's the one where Sarah Paulson, she is, the way it's filmed, the camera's like right in her face and it's getting kind of blurry and kind of, uh, what's the, the film thing when it starts to like tunnel vision? Whatever that. And she's like, I put wine. Or, or, wow, she put wine in the pasta. I mean, no, I put arsenic in the wine and the pasta. Which season is Colts? Eight? Nine? Something. I, I think seven? I don't know. I have no idea. <laughs> it might, I think it's eight. <laughs> somewhere in that general vicinity. You know, one thing I love about that show is you don't have to watch every season, and you can watch the seasons in any order you want to. Yeah, and then if you're like, I really am not connecting with this season, you don't have to watch it. You can go to the next season. Yep. But, okay, with that, Brittany, what is your poison case? I will be talking about the original Dr. Death, Harold Shipman. Ooh, the original Dr. Death. Yeah, I say that because, well, doctors killing their patients is rare, but he's not the only case. That is true. God, how much would it suck if your last name was just was Death and you wanted to be a doctor? <laughs> your name is Dr. Death. I think that's one of those uh, points in your life when you legitimately uh, think about and actively go change your name. Okay, so speaking of changing names... One of my favorite recurring sketches they do on SNL, because I have not, I don't think I've ever actually sat and watched SNL on TV. I I watched the YouTube clips they upload, mm -hmm. but they, they have a sketch they do every couple months and it's a news reporters and some kind of something happened at the change of name office. So they're like interviewing people. Oh, yes. <laughs> and... Like, first off, half the names, I'm like, that's a good drag queen name. And then half of them, I'm like, oh, my God. They're like, ma'am, what is your name? She's like, I, I'm Tess, uh, Tess Tickle. <laughs> okay. Uh, and I love it so much. Yeah, the probably the most recent one they did a couple of months ago was freaking hilarious. Man, you just got to, like, give it to those writers. <laughs> they write some funny shit. They do. So... Back to Harold Shipman. The sources I used, an article from Radio Times by Lauren Morris, the Harold Shipman Murderpedia page, and an article on BMJ journals from the postgraduate medical journals. So this is someone's like medical research paper. Okay. Harold Shipman was a general practitioner in Britain and one of the most prolific serial killers in recorded history, and killed anywhere from 15 to as many as 215 of his patients between 1974 and 1998. 
215. That we know of. And I'll describe this variance in these numbers uh, as I'm in, you know, in into my case. I mean, well, even just surface level, like, doctor or nurse killers. Like, when I did Janine Jones. Yeah. Way back in episode three. It's, it's like, well, part of their job is people die around them. Like, how many could we be looking at? Exactly. And that's why it is rare for a doctor to be convicted of murder. It's it's hard to prove a lot of the time. And that's also why our numbers are always uncertain. It's not easy to prove. And, you know, Harold Shipman is called the original Dr. Death. Well, when we think of Dr. Death, a lot of us in today's world, we think of Dr. Christopher Dunch. And he was the doctor here in Dallas at Baylor who literally, there's a fantastic Wondery podcast on it. They actually just released a second season that I haven't listened to yet. But their first season and then a series of updates are about Christopher Dunch. And he was eventually convicted of murder. He somehow got all the way through his schooling and became a neurosurgeon. And he was paralyzing people and killing people. And clearly, like he even internally decapitated one of his patients because he didn't know what the fuck he was doing oh my god so that is literally one of the most horrifying stories and i'm like um my doctor is at baylor so i'm like okay um there you go but also the baylor scott and white hospital uh there's so many of them everywhere all over texas yeah but I i say all of that to say convicting a doctor of murder is difficult in the first place um, I have a lot of thoughts about it. We don't honestly have enough time to go into it, but you really should listen to Dr. Death, uh, the Wondery podcast, if you're interested in learning more about the process. Now, Harold Shipman, this happened many years ago, and I will go into a little bit of the process, but it's horrifying. It's horrifying trying to prove something like this because, Tyler, like you were saying, People die around doctors every day, and even if a doctor is killing patients, it doesn't mean he killed every single one. Well, yeah, and it's also, I mean, doctors are are seen as in such a high regard because they save lives. I mean, they, they literally are the thing standing between life and death for so many people, and you know, the Hippocratic Oath, first do no harm, is, I mean, that's a huge part. So I think, obviously, you hear a doctor losing patients, you're never going to think murder. You're going to think malpractice way before you think murder. That is a very good point. Well, let me tell you about Harold Shipman. He was born in Nottingham, England, and he was the second of four children to Vera and Harold Shipman. To Vera Vinci. Yeah, that's who I did. Uh, it was his mom <laughs> in my first poisoning case. It's not. She wasn't real. His mom was real. Vera Vinci maybe wasn't. Go listen to episode three. Tyler got really pissed at me. Pissed is a strong <laughs> word. Furious. Podcast almost ended right th- then and there. Oh my god, it absolutely <laughs> didn't. <laughs> Harold Shipman was particularly close with his mother. And then she ended up dying of cancer when he was only 17 years old. Her death ended up happening in a way that 
became very similar to Shipman's later modus operandi. In the later stages of her disease, she had morphine administered at home by a doctor. Shipman witnessed his mother's pain subside in light of this horrible illness she had gone through up until her eventual death on June 21st, 1963. So we saw that moment when her pain started to go away. Shipman received a scholarship to medical school and graduated from Leeds School of Medicine in 1970. He started work at Pontefract General Infirmary in Pontefract, West Reading of Yorkshire in 1974. He took his first position as a general practitioner, also known as a GP, at the Abraham Ormirod Medical Center in Todmorden, West Yorkshire. And wow, the British people in their words, <laughs> y'all. <laughs> These are like the longest titles, and I'm, I mean, I am trying, you guys. And um, I say that. I say British. I mean English, because I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce some of the like Welsh town names I've seen. <laughs> that is really true. Like, have you seen the, uh, I think it was a BBC news, I'm, I'm sure literally all of y'all have seen it, but the, like, BBC News weatherman, and it's that town in Wales that's, like, 27 letters long, yes. and he's, like, he pronounces, he's like, oh, and here we have clouds, and, and I'm like, <laughs> yes. okay. That's amazing. I hand it to y'all. <laughs> I say that again, we, we're from Oklahoma. Yeah, I know. Think of all the Native American stuff. And we're like, guys, it's Chautauqua. And it's like, that looks like Chattahooga, but okay, whatever. Like, guys, Tahlequah. And they're like, it's not Tahlequah. No, <laughs> it's not. And then I've never heard someone try to pronounce it Tahlequah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, for as many things that we do pronounce correctly in Oklahoma, there are more that we pronounce incorrectly. And in Texas, don't even get me fucking started, Tyler, on Guadalupe Street in Austin because uh, it hurts my heart. I know. I just called it Guad because I could never say Guadalupe incorrectly. Sorry. What about San Jacinto? <laughs> Please stop. It just hurts me so much. San Jack. San Jacinto. Ugh. But yeah, okay, continue with your place names in England. So, in 1975, Shipman was caught forging prescriptions of pethidine for his own use. He was fined 600 pounds and briefly attended a drug rehab clinic in York. And that was it. That was his punishment. He was writing prescriptions to himself and basically just got a slap on the wrist. I mean... He's a doctor, though. You know, but also, he's... I could see the punishment being a lot more severe if he was writing it for other people. True. This, Yeah, good So, point. you know, it being something he's writing for himself, you know, I, I'm like, okay, go to the, uh, like, drug rehab and stuff. Uh, but 600 pounds? Honey, I've got some pounds you can take from me. <laughs> Continue. After a brief period as medical officer for Hatfield College, Durham, and temporary work for the National Coal Board, he became a GP at the Donnybrook Medical Center in Hyde, Greater Manchester in 1977. 
Shipman continued work as a GP in Hyde throughout the 80s, and then he ended up founding his own surgery on Market Street in 1993, and he became a very well-respected member of the community. That's when I was born. So, dude, like, literally, you know, worked for many, many years, and in the 90s, opened up his own practice. Like, he's seemingly extremely successful. Like, go Addison. I mean, we're not... Private practice. We're not cheering for this guy, though. No. Because remember the years I said at the beginning? Yeah, yep, I just remembered. Like, oh, JK, he's been murdering this whole time. So in March 1998, Deborah Massey, who worked for the Frank Massey and Sons Funeral Parlor, she started to become very suspicious after she noticed a high death rate among Shipman's patients and a large number of cremation forms that he had countersigned. So she's just working there and seeing this pattern. A lot of these were older women. And another GP also informed the Medical Defense Union. He he raised a red flag too. But the police looked into it, and they were unable to find any sufficient evidence. And so they closed their investigation. Wow. Did they not autopsy them? Dude, they were cremated. Oh, well, can't autopsy them then. No. Wow. Oh, that's why I signed the cremation forms and stuff. Huh. I will say, I gotta give it to Deborah. I just so much love when we have these cases and someone in like a completely unrelated to the killer fashion is doing their day-to-day job and is like, this seems suspicious. I'm going to raise an alarm. I know. The fact that she, I mean, you also have to look at it like this is her day in day job. And when you continuously see the same name over and over and over, yeah, he's a doctor in the vicinity, but why do all these similar cases keep coming from him? It does start to seem suspicious. Yeah, but it's also something that it's just, she's going above and beyond and I think ways that would never be expected because it would not be abnormal if she was just doing her day-to-day job and didn't put two and two together or maybe did and was like oh that's weird but the fact that she was like you know what this doesn't feel right i'm gonna look i'm gonna i'm gonna raise the alarm yeah and especially questioning a doctor that's not an easy task as, as i've mentioned no So, like I said, the police ended up finding no sufficient evidence and they dropped the investigation. It was later determined, however, that these were very inexperienced police that just didn't see the evidence. It was always there, but they missed it. So in August 1998, so later that same year, taxi driver John Shaw informed police that he suspected Shipman had killed 21 patients after noticing that many elderly women he was taking to the medical center died in Shipman's care despite arriving in what seemed to be good health. So this is another non-medical related individual that is like, dude, I think this doctor is killing his patients. Oh my God. And he's noticing that. He's not the only taxi driver driving older patients to the hospital. And if he's already counted 21. Yeah. And like we said, 
It's already interesting enough that outsiders are seeing this, but Deborah, she was in in the funeral industry and she worked at a funeral home. So her seeing Shipman's name over and over, yeah, suspicious, but also, yeah, people come from the hospital. Like, it's not as suspicious sounding. She obviously yeah. had reasons for her red flags. But with John, he's doing his daily job, and his job is all over the city. Yet he's remembering these people he's taking to the hospital, and they're all dying. And it's just, for him to piece that all together, it's like, he clearly got suspicious and started paying attention and, like, noticing this pattern, this horrific pattern. And, I mean, maybe some of his passengers, he they were regulars. They're like, oh, yeah, this is Mrs. Smith. I take her to the grocery store. I take her to her doctor's appointments and stuff. And then suddenly she's not asking for rides anymore. Because, yeah. I mean, unless he's combing the newspaper at the obituaries, how how is he going to know, you know, how many of his uh passengers died in the hospital or what so well and that's what i'm thinking like he must have gotten a suspicion and then started following it and noticing this pattern more so once again the police are starting to take notice and at this point in time they've acknowledged or they at least understand that they had put some inexperienced officers on the case at the beginning so they started paying close attention after shipman's last victim kathleen grundy She was found dead at her home in June 1998, with Shipman being the last person to see her alive and recording cause of death as old age. And so this is a couple of months before John came to the police. So they were already investigating this yet again. Kathleen's daughter, Angela Woodruff, who was a lawyer, was informed that an inauthentic looking will had been made supposedly by her mother except the will did not have Angela or her children, but the will did not have Angela or her children included in it. Instead, it left 386,000 pounds to Shipman. Okay. See, that is such an obvious red flag. Like, I get patients love their doctors. I mean, I've had some great doctors. I don't have a will. But I'm not about to be like... Oh, you're so good. You know what? Fuck my kids. Fuck my family. It's you, Shipman. Like, what? come on. Yeah, I know. And there are a couple of theories. One being he did this because he wanted to be caught. The other being that he did this and he was going to take this money and run and escape. And therefore evade capture. Oh, I don't think he did this as like a, this is my cry to help. I don't want to murder anymore. Someone catch me. No, I think he's cocky because he's been doing this for 20 years and not been caught. Yeah, he clearly didn't do his research and probably didn't realize that Angela was a lawyer. And she's going to be like, what the fuck is this? I just, who leaves money to their doctor in their will? That's weird. Also, this is super random, but I know for some reason we keep talking about the way words are pronounced. And I say lawyer and you say lawyer. And I don't know which one's actually right. I don't know where I'm from. I There are so many words I pronounce differently than the rest of our entire family that I'm like, are all my memories before 16 like fake? And I was just, I have amnesia. I'm going to wake up and be like, no, I'm actually... Roger Millstone from Valencia, California. 
we actually um, hired the Men in Black, and they've they've done that like memory erase thing on you a couple of times, and your story just gets kind of confusing every time we retell it, and so that's why you've got real fucked up memory. Well, they need to do it some more because, <laughs> damn, there's some shit I wish I could forget. So don't we all? Though I mean, some more than others, but definitely. And I oop. Angela reported Shipman to the police, and they. This is when they opened up the investigation. Found traces of heroin, um, diamorphine, which is often used to treat terminal cancer patients in her body. So, in fact, forensic scientists said that her death was consistent with the use or administration of a significant quantity of morphine or diamorphine, and similar values have been seen in fatalities attributed to morphine overdoses. Shipman asserted that Kathleen was addicted to a drug like codeine, morphine, or heroin, and pointed to his GP notes as evidence. He's like, look, this is in my notes. She had a drug addiction. Looks like she overdosed. Yeah, well, and that's such a difficult position to be in. If he's like a normal doctor, not a murderer. Because if she's dying and in pain, she needs the medicine, even if she is addicted to it. But he's a murderer, so not the same. He also said her cause of death was old age. Does anyone actually die of old age? Like, is that ever actually a listed cause of death? Wouldn't it be like, oh yeah, they're 98, but their cause of death is liver failure because they're old as hell. But just putting old age? I I don't know. That's a good question. Police did, however, find out that Shipman's comments had been written on his computer after Kathleen's death. As well as they found a typewriter that could have been used to make the forged will that had the same uh, like type case set. Harold Shipman was arrested on September 7th, 1998. Police managed to investigate and certify 15 other cases where Shipman had administered lethal doses of diamorphine, falsely registered his patients' deaths, and edited their medical history to show that they were deathly ill. They were not. Oh, so it's people coming in being like, oh, yeah, you know, we're good and healthy and I'm 80, but I'm doing my shit. I'm strong as an ox, but I do have a sore throat. And he's like, well, you're terminally ill and dead now. The thing is, for anyone who thinks that they can change something on a computer and that that exact time of that change can't be traced back to you. You don't know a lot about computers because that is something that you or I could probably figure out how to do. It's not that hard. Oh my god. You open a shared Google Doc and it'll show you right up there. Last edited. Show previous history so you can go back to like what it looked like before these time-stamped edits. Oh yeah. I know. And I know in the 90s it was different. But even then... I almost feel like it would be even easier to find out when something was made, because the amount of code on a computer, there's not as much, you know? Yeah, I don't know how computers worked in the 90s. I barely remember the 90s. (laughs) Harold Shipman was charged with the murders of Marie West, Irene Turner, Lizzie Adams, Jean Lilly, Ivy Lomas, Muriel Grimshaw, Marie Quinn, Kathleen Wagstaff, Bianca Pomfret, Nora Nuttall, Pamela Hiller, Maureen Ward, Winifred Milor, Joan Mila, and Kathleen Grundy. 
all of whom had died between 1995 and 1998. On January 31, 2000, after six days of deliberation, the jury found Shipman guilty of killing 15 patients by lethal injections of diamorphine and forging the will of Kathleen Grundy. The trial judge sentenced him to 15 consecutive life sentences and recommended that he never be released. Shipman also received four years for the will forgery. Harold Shipman, though, he continued to deny his guilt. He disputed the scientific evidence against him. He never made any statements about his actions or why he did this. And this is one of the things that always drives me crazy is that not knowing why serial killers do the things they do. Because if anything, that is one of the things that is, I don't really like this word choice, but it makes sense in the context. That is one of the things that can be fascinating about serial killers is learning that psychological background, like why they do what they do. Not knowing that and just being like, oh, okay, so you just did it for the hell of it. What the fuck? Yeah, it's just like, what are the pathways that made you able to not just justify this to yourself, but go beyond that? That's, I mean, the psychology of it's so fascinating. And yeah, not having it, it's like that forever lingering, but why? Especially for a doctor, because he went through so much schooling. That's not easy to do. He took his Hippocratic Oath, and yet... He's more like his hypocritical oath. Seriously, though, because it's not like he's trying to be some angel of mercy either. Like, he's not doing what it made it sound like happened to his mother, where they helped her pass peacefully. He's just taking people that aren't even ill and making them ill and giving them an overdose enough to where it kills them. Well, and it's like, I mean, he's a doctor, so he has a huge ego. I mean, you you want your doctor to have a big ass ego, they're saving your life. <laughs> I definitely don't I want kind of, I don't want a doctor that's like, I mean, I'm okay at what I do. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean you tell I me don't you're know. good or <laughs> Dr. Charlemagne's a lot better, but I, I try really hard. I'm like, okay, well, my skull flaps open, so thanks for that. <laughs> this doctor's like, hey, these get degrees, and I'm like, please, please, please stop giving me stitches. <laughs> No, um, but I just, my first thought whenever we discuss, like, doctors who kill is that ego-based, like, do they get some kind of, like, power rush of literally, like, playing in God. this way, be, yeah, playing God, being the decider of life and death. Yeah. But I also am like, but w- without him actually giving his reasons, who the fuck knows? It's anyone's guess. Um, His defense tried but failed to have the count of murder of Kathleen Grundy, where there was this clear motive alleged. They tried to have that tried separately from the other murders, where there was no obvious motive, but that didn't happen. Also, Harold Shipman's wife, Primrose, she was also in complete denial about his crimes. I mean... You know, as much as when we talk about family members or spouses or loved ones of these horrific serial killers being in complete denial, my first reaction is to be like, bitch, you blind. You're ignoring shit. But then I'm like, okay, well, if I found out you were a huge serial killer, no. 
I don't really appreciate you putting that on me, but I see what you're saying. Well, I mean, don't be a serial killer, but even if you are, I won't believe him, so <laughs> guess I'm in your camp. <laughs> so immediately after his sentencing in February 2000, Health Secretary Alan Milburn opened an inquiry into Shipman's murders and how they happened. Relatives of the victims campaigned for the private inquiry to be held in public, and eventually it was. Police announced that they were investigating Shipman's role in 175 deaths, but they revealed that there were not going to be any more murder charges. By June 2001, the Shipman inquiry, it officially begins in Manchester, with the first phase dedicated to examining 466 cases where Shipman's foul play is suspected. Oh my god. A year later, in July 2002, the first phase of the inquiry report was published, and it concluded that Shipman killed at least 215 of his patients, and possibly more. 171 were women, 44 were men, the oldest was a 93-year-old woman, and the youngest a 47-year-old man. There is also a note that I found from a different source that his youngest was Peter Lewis, who was 41. So still in 40s, very young. Yeah. Another year later, in July 2003, the second and third Shipman Inquiry reports were published, where Dame Janet Smith criticizes the police's investigation, and she calls for radical reform of the way coroners work in England and Wales. Because, clearly, all of these people's causes of death were actually being missed. Yeah. Well, and it's one thing to have someone who maybe has like terminal pancreatic cancer and they are on these morphines and they're basically on uh, palliative care. Right. But for how many of these people were healthy and then just died? I'm like, yeah, no, that that should have been a red flag much earlier. But it also makes me think, you know, it's easier to spot his victims that were healthy and then died how many of his victims were sick and died well and the other thing you have to remember is he is fabricating and editing his medical notes he's editing these people's medical history so the coroner is getting this report and it's like okay they went into the hospital for um, stomach issues. And then if you're a fan of Grey's Anatomy, let's think about Meredith's uh, stepmom. I and mean, one really stepmom in her eyes. But you get what I'm saying. How she goes into the doctor because she has the hiccups and she ends up dying. And she dies. So I'm not, I'm not saying it's the coroner's faults, but I am saying 215 is a really big number and there were probably more. Oh yeah. Well, that's what I'm saying is like, you know, pretty much every victim that we're looking at, it's the well they were healthy and then just suddenly died and there's no part of me that thinks he was only targeting his healthy patients no i'm like no 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 he was also killing his sick patients so maybe 215 doesn't even crack it for how many years he was a doctor and how many patients he had i know and that's the scary thing the true number will never be known and a lot of these cases could have been brought to court but the authorities concluded that it'd be hard to have a fair trial, again, because of a lot of these things that we're talking about. 
and because of the huge publicity around the original trial. Doing repeat ones, how's that going to go? I mean, yeah. The, you're, how are you going to be able to find a jury that has never heard of this? Right. And also, given the sentences in the first trial, 15 life sentences and four, plus four years, a further trial was seen as unnecessary. And yeah. the, the use of the word unnecessary and that idea is controversial because we talked about this in the last episode of yeah. does that mean that these families don't feel the same equal weight of justice because their victim, like their family member who was a victim was never properly, like they made it on a list where it's like, oh, yep, he killed this person, but there were never any years added to a sentence because of it. Yeah. Bothersome. Or it's just like. Oh, well, because, you know, my loved one died and it took a couple years longer to get the evidence than it took for these other cases to, like, go through and everything. They don't get justice. Yeah, I don't like that. A lot of Britain's legal structure concerning healthcare and medicine was reviewed and modified as a direct and also indirect result of Shipman's crimes especially after the the findings of the Shipman inquiry. Shipman, however, is still to this day the only doctor in Britain legal history to be found guilty of killing his patients. Now, The um, only one? Yeah, that doesn't mean... It's the only one who has been found guilty. Yeah. I guarantee he's not the only one doing it. And there are other doctors who have been looked into, and because of... The, the fucking gray areas of the medical world, I guess, nothing came to fruition in the same way as Harold Shipman's case. Yeah, but I mean, Britain is an island of 60 million people. There are other murder doctors that have been. Yeah. Shipman died on January 13th, 2004, after hanging himself in his cell at Wakefield Prison in West Yorkshire, the day oh. before his 58th birthday. So to this day... Shit. We do not know why he did what he did, and now we have no way of ever knowing. We can't ask him. No. And this is one of the things that's very frustrating, because he served four years in prison. Four. Yeah. It's just heartbreaking, because he was the only person who had these answers, and he took so much away from these families, and then also, like, extra stab wound took away any real hope of getting all of the answers or because science well yeah because science can do a lot but it can't make up all the ground in this case no science can't give you the answers why yeah like the mental reasoning exactly yeah like the psychological his justification science can't tell you that no that is the case of harold shipman the original dr death shit so tyler Tell me about your poisoning. <laughs> Tell me about a time when... No. Tell me about um, your poisoner. My poisoning. Well, my poisoning is I had uh, some curry that I put in the freezer for a couple months and then reheated it and then had food poisoning and you got to hear me cry on the phone about that. But my case I'm doing this episode is the serial killer Nanny Doss. I think I've heard of her. She's evil. Uh, yeah. Well, there's a lot to it. So, the sources I used, I used her Murderpedia page, 
and then an article in ThoughtCo by Charles Montaldo, who I have used before. I recognize his last name. So, Nanny Doss, she is also referred to as the Giggling Granny. That's what I've heard. That is the name I've Uh, heard. You might have also heard this one. The Lonely Hearts Killer, The Black Widow, and Lady Bluebeard. There's also, isn't there someone else known as the Lonely Hearts Killer that I did? But it was like a dude? Yeah, I feel like I remember that. It just makes me think of that one song that's like, Play with the Queen of Hearts! Anyway, uh, that's not her, though. She, well, the Lonely Hearts Killer is her. But uh, she's not, I don't know, Linda Ronstadt? That's not who that sings that, probably. Anywho. So. Nanny, she was born in Blue Mountain, Alabama, on November 4th of 1905, as Nancy Hazel. Her parents were James and Lou Hazel, and both Nanny and her mom hated James. They hated her dad. He was this very strict, very controlling father and husband, and he had a, he had a mean streak. She had a really unhappy childhood. They were very poor. She never really learned how to read. Like, she would go to school, but it was very erratic. She would get pulled out of school a lot of times because her dad would force her and her siblings to, like, work on the family farm. Oh, my God. Instead of going to school. So you'd pull them out of classes to work and then send them back and be like, guess you gotta catch up. (laughs) Figure it the fuck out. Yeah. I mean, also, this is, like, the early, I don't know, maybe this is 1915 at this point. She's 10. Was that more normal? But still. I don't fucking know. Hmm. I mean, I know, like, family farms and family businesses, like, that's how they made a living. So maybe at certain times of the year, there were less people actually going to school. Yeah, but I I don't know. I also, if you told me, like, oh, a woman going to school in Alabama in 1915, that's, whoa. I I would also be like, oh, I believe that. So yeah. I, don't, I don't really know. Good point. But, yeah, she never really got an education. When she was around seven, though, uh, her and her family, they were taking a train to visit some relatives. And... While they're, like, on the train, it stops suddenly, and she, like, flies forward. She hits her head on the metal bar that's, like, on the seat in front of her. And, again, head injuries. Yep, we have talked about it time and time again, and here it is once again. Yeah, so pretty much from then on, she would have severe headaches, blackouts, depression, And she blamed that and also her mental instability on that head injury. When she was a kid, her favorite thing to do, she would read her mom's romance magazines. And she would sit there and, like, dream of her own romantic future. I mean, as, I don't know, little kids do. They're like, I'm gonna get married. And also, I'm like, okay, we're saying romance magazines. What's that mean? It doesn't mean that. Is it J14 or is it Cosmo? No, it's probably, I feel like you're about to get into like the Lonely Hearts letters and stuff. I mean, I get into that, but she also really likes romance novels. And I'm like, okay, but are romance novels in 19, 
I don't know, 20s to 50s, the same thing as romance novels today. Okay, Tyler, romance novels are not all erotica. Well, then what's the point? (laughs) I mean... (laughs) He kissed her shoulder sensually, and that's like the peak of the book. That's the climax. Bitch, that's not my climax. (laughs) Okay. There's more (laughs) to sex in romance, but there's a whole romance genre, and then there's an erotica genre, and then there's the ones that do blend in between. I mean, I guess. I Maybe I just don't want to read a book about, like, two happy people in love finding love. Like, that's awesome. That's cool. <laughs> that's great for you, Beth Ann. You know, some of us need to, like, experience that through characters if, you know, we're not experiencing that in life. Oh, I just screamed. <laughs> I'm sorry. Was that too depressing and real for, like, the world? Y'all, it's fucking 2020. We're not dating. If you are... I haven't touched another person in years. If you are, I hope you're being fucking careful. Yeah, for real. Like, y'all, FaceTime dating is fun. Chipotle just started doing their new, like, um, they're launching meals that's like, this is your hinge date meal. And it's like a one-person burrito and, like, chips and salsa and stuff. And I'm like, I love that. (laughs) You order one for you, one for your partner, and y'all get on, I don't know, Zoom or FaceTime. I hope people aren't dating on Zoom. <laughs> That's just sad in corporate. You know, um, <laughs> that is such a smart marketing technique for restaurants to do. But please continue. This is not a dating podcast. Dear God. I know, but... It's not. Wow. <laughs> yeah, y'all don't want to get dating advice um, from me. My longest relationship was three months in college, so I just... You know, honestly, me filling my glass of wine to this level is, I think, a perfect representation of how I feel about that. <laughs> Anywho, uh, we're going to put our own problems and bury them like we always do. I'm just going to... And we're going to jump back into my case. Shove it under the rug and talk about the giggling granny. Let's do. So, uh, yeah, Nanny, when she's a kid, she loves reading her mom's romance magazines, dreaming of, like, her own... You know, romantic, getting married. Yeah. Let's be real. But her favorite part was the Lonely Hearts column. Like, kind of called out. I'm sorry. I think this is something that's happened in another case. I think those Lonely Hearts columns inspired a lot of not good shit. Well, I mean, she's also called the Lonely Hearts Killer, so two and two together. That too. But when she and her sisters were growing up, their dad was very restrictive. He wouldn't let them wear makeup. He wouldn't let them wear what the article said is attractive clothing. And I'm like, oh, so they were long sleeves and jean skirts kind of girls. Yeah. None of those flowy summer dresses. Mm-mm. Um, and he also forbade them from going to dances or other social events. Pretty much, Nanny didn't really have any interaction with a man who wasn't her father until she was 16 and got a job. That was like her first time interacting with men. Men. And so, shocker of the century, when she was 16, she got married to a guy named Charlie Braggs. They met at the linen thread factory where they both worked And he got her dad's approval. They got married after dating for four months. Which I'm like, yeah, if you've never seen a dude before, 
And this hot guy comes up to you as your coworker. Yeah, yeah, marrying him after four months. I get the mindset. I get it. I mean, at this point in time, 16 is basically 30. So she's just like, oh, shit, I got to play catch up. I I mean, she's counting her eggs. (laughs) Oh, God, honey, you have plenty. You have plenty. I know. You're fine. You're fine. (laughs) With today's technology, have a kid at 50. Not that big of a deal. Totally possible. Anywho, uh, I don't think that's what she's thinking, though. I think she's 16, horny, and is like, that's what a man looks like! Charlie, marry me! So, they do. He gets her dad's approval, they get married. Um, He's the only son of his unmarried mother, so his family unit is him and his mom. And so his mom's like, oh, baby, you're getting married, I'm moving in. I was about to say, sounds like mama is coming home. So yeah, mom moves in, and she takes up a lot of Braggs' attention. And a lot of times she's preventing Nanny from doing things that she wants to do. Basically, Nanny is now there to be a perfect housewife and wait hand on hand and foot on not only husband, but husband's mom. Their marriage in four years, from 1923 to 1927, they had four daughters, which means she was always barefoot and pregnant, and I... her poor cervix. Yeah, literally, she was pregnant for four years straight. Yeah! Oh, no. That is a lot of being pregnant. Like, I know there are some people who, like, absolutely love it, and I commend you. But to me, that sounds, number one, really exhausting, and also just, I want to sleep on my stomach. Oh, my God. I just... that... (laughs) And also a lot of other things, but... (laughs) Well, yeah, but I, oh my god, like, y'all, condoms existed in the 20s. Well, they clearly weren't using them, and maybe didn't feel like they wanted to. Maybe they wanted all these kids. I mean, maybe. Loretta Lynn had not yet sung about the pill, but, (laughs) oof. So, because of all of this, all of the stress she's under, Nanny, she started drinking, and her casual smoking became, like, full-on chain-smoking. And I'm like, well, you're pregnant for four years, don't chain smoke, but it's the 20s, I don't think they knew that. I'm sure that was when they were like, have a cigarette, it'll make your baby's bones strong. No, but literally, that's what the ads were like. Wait, are you serious? Because I thought you were joking. Uh, No, literally, look up, like... I don't want to. Or don't, because it's uh, fucked up. But, like, cigarette ads and stuff from, like, the 50s and earlier... I mean, it was shit. I, like, they would specifically print out, like, full-page ba- ads of, like, doctors say smoking has nothing to do with, like, unhealthy babies. And then when the science started coming out of, like, it causes low birth weight, they started printing ads of, like, well, I know a lot of my friends would love to have a smaller baby. That's easier. And I'm like, what the fuck is wrong with you? The Oh, my God. My, oh. It's like there's a certain level of, oh, okay, I understand why advertising was this way. They didn't know. But then when it transitions over to the, oh, they did know and they somehow tried to twist it, I'm like, that's not fucking okay. Yeah, literally the Surgeon General being like, smoking is harmful. Babies come out like low birth weight and stuff and then being like, okay, but let's twist that. Skinny babies. It's, that's so fucked up. That makes my stomach turn. I hate that. 
it's disgusting. Uh, but yeah, so after all this stress, being pregnant for a hundred years, taking care of mother-in-law, taking care of husband, she's like, fuck it. I'm drinking, I'm smoking, I'm done. And their marriage, it was not a happy one. Both of them were suspecting that the other was cheating on them. And like Bragg's her husband, he would often disappear for days. And then in early 1927, they lost their two middle daughters to what they thought was food poisoning. Oh, did they think it was food poisoning or did he? Well, that was the official ruling. Hmm. That the two daughters died of food poisoning. Gotcha. Official. But Bragg's Bragg's on the same train of thought as you are. Because he was like, she fucking killed our daughters. And so he left. He took their eldest daughter, Melvina, with him and left. So it was just, I guess his mom's still there. And Nanny and their newborn daughter, Florine. Wait, wait. Why did he take his eldest daughter and leave the newborn? I mean, she's a newborn, breastfeeding and stuff. Like, I don't know. Needs to be with mom. Maybe he had plans of coming back later and getting her. Well, he does come back later. But a little bit after this, his mom also died. And so now it is just Nanny and Florine. I mean... Little baby Florine. One of the things about poisoning people through food, which is what I'm assuming she's doing, it's like, at a certain point, do people not start to be like, yeah, every time someone has some of her tomato bisque, they die. Like, seriously. Tomato bisque. (laughs) That is your go-to for an (laughs) Alabama woman in the 20s. She's making her family tomato bisque. Okay, number one, I'm not thinking about local cuisine. I was thinking of a soup that popped into my mind. I mean, I, no, tomato bisque is great. I just was very, I don't know why that took me out of my seat. <laughs> That's what shocked you. My soup selection. I mean, now I kind of want some. Uh, at work, we used to have this red pepper bisque that was everything. Anyway, this is not culinary podcast. It's murder time. Uh, yeah, for real, though. I'm like, were there people being like, you didn't invite Nanny to the potluck, right? Like. You've labeled which dish was hers. Okay, we're going to move that one into the kitchen so no one eats it. Because... Right. What the fuck? But again, at this point... Although maybe people just aren't paying as much attention to her as we're thinking in retrospect. I mean, but also this is the early 20s or the mid 20s, late 20s, whatever. It's 1927. And the daughters are, I don't know, probably two and three, three and four, something like that. I don't know if food poisoning death was like, that's a thing. No. So I don't know how how much, even if it was well known that, oh, they ate Nanny's cooking and died. Like, (laughs) is that even a shocker? Or is that the same as today of like, oh, well, you know, Pamela's son has chicken pox. You You have a really good point. Because, no, that's not something that people are going to be suspicious of. Even though it's happening, like, people are, someone poisoning people is not generally an initial thought that anyone has. Especially a mother poisoning her children. Exactly. Like, that's, as much as we know now, as, like, true crime people, that happens, that's never going to be someone's thought. No. 
So now we flash forward like a year or so to the summer of 1928. Nanny has been, she got a new job at like a cotton mill. She's supporting Florine, doing her thing. Well, suddenly Braggs returns. He shows up. Uh, He's with Melvina, the eldest daughter, who at this point is like five. I say eldest daughter. She's like, I don't know. Are five-year-olds toddlers? She's a toddler. Yeah, she's a toddler. Uh, he shows up with her and another woman. A divorcee with her own child. So, scandal. The 20s, Alabama. But he shows up and I, I guess is just like, hey, I met Charlene. I don't know her name, but in my head, her name's Charlene. I met Charlene. I want a divorce because I want to afford with her. And Nanny's like, that's fair. So, they get a divorce. Melvina lives with nanny now so now the two daughters and nanny are living in the house together i guess he got over his suspecting that she murdered two of their children Uh, apparently because the only other thing i can think of is did he trade his eldest daughter's life in his mind to uh marry this woman because that is a level of fucked up i cannot uh touch I don't even, I I don't want to assume something about someone that I don't know. Yeah. But you're right, it's one of the two. So now, uh, Nanny, she's working, she's supporting her two daughters, and she soothes her loneliness, as the source said, which is just a very interesting way of phrasing it. Uh, yeah. Uh, by reading romance magazines again. Okay, well I understand it more now. She's masturbating. (laughs) To the romance books. You know what? Good for her. It's healthy. She ain't got no man. The kids are down for a nap. Let loose, queen. You too, Hugh. Literally. Uh, uh. Uh, So she, again, like, fell back in love with the Lonely Hearts column, like she had as a kid. And she started writing to some of the men that were advertising there. Because she's like, I'm a single mom. I'm looking for love. I want this. Also, again, this is 1928. She's 23 years old and a single mother of two. I've been picturing her older. (laughs) Yeah. uh, Same. But I just, like, kind of connected them as I was saying it. And I'm like, she's so fucking young. Oh my god. If I was around in the 20s... Well, if I was around in the 20s in Alabama and gay, I'd be dead. But if I was around in the 20s and 27 and single... (laughs) (laughs) You're in total lost cause. I am a spinster. Anywho, she's writing to the guys in the Lonely Hearts column. That's where we are. And one of the advertisements she saw in it, like, interests her. She was like, ooh, I like this one. And it was this guy, Robert Frank Harrelson. He's a 23-year-old factory worker from Jacksonville. I'm already interested. He sent her romantic poetry. She sent him a cake. Am I Nanny Doss? Yes. I mean, no. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> no, you're I've not. I've never... I don't even know where to buy poison. <laughs> no. You're the one that asked the question. <laughs> I- I'm thinking I in the someone sends you poems, you send them a cake part. Um, I'm assuming this cake didn't have poison because she was interested in this guy from florida yeah i'd send him this cake uh yeah no but i would send baked goods if someone sent me poetry yeah um that's just me but anyway yeah she's sending him cakes he's sending her poetry 
Uh, and then in 1929, they met and got married. Why the fuck was it so easy in the 20s? It was really good poetry and really good cake. Oh, also, boys weren't fuck boys. Except maybe they were. No, they 100% were. I took it back. They a hun- Men have always been trash. The moment I said it, I was like, nah. We just weren't willing to call them out. And now we are. That's the difference. You're telling me Gatsby wasn't a fuck boy? He was the ultimate fuck boy. <laughs> he was. He was. He's the prototypical fuck boy. Anywho, yeah, so she marries Gatsby, except he's not, he's a factory worker. He's not a, like, fake millionaire. It's been a long time since I read it, (laughs) and I did not watch the movie. Uh, But yeah, so she's 24. It's been two years since she got divorced, and she's like, let's get this going. They get married. And so she moves to Jacksonville. She and her two daughters, they move in together. But then after a few months of marriage, probably... This is something that he didn't write down in his poems. She realized that he was a severe alcoholic. He also had a criminal record for assault. And they they just, they went through the learning about each other period after the marriage. Oh, that is not ideal. No, but I mean, despite all of that, I guess they made it work because their marriage lasted 16 years. Melvina... At this point, now it's 1943. We're jumping ahead. What I was gonna say is like 20 years. It's 14. She's like 19 or something because that's when you have kids at this point. But yeah, now it's 1943. Melvina, her oldest daughter, gives birth to a child named Robert. And then two years later, she's pregnant again. Like Melvina's married and like has a husband at this point and stuff. It's having popping out kids. Uh, two years after Robert's born, she has another baby, and for this childbirth, a nanny, like, comes to the house to help, and it's like a a long, drawn-out birth. Like, it's hours of giving birth, and she has another son. But pretty soon after birth, this, her baby boy dies. Melvina, she's like laying in the bed she's exhausted she just i mean had hours of labor kind of out of the corner of her eye nanny is like holding her baby and she thinks that she sees her mom stick a hat pin into the baby's head wait like a pin like a needle to kill him yeah and she's like what the fuck because again she's groggy out of it and so she tells her husband and then her sister, Florine, and she's like, what the fuck? And then they're like, well, when Nanny, you know, said the baby was dead, she was holding a pin. Okay. I um, I would have never thought ever about that type of murder weapon on an infant. But if you're a newborn and you're... Oh my god, I can't even believe I mean, I'm you, saying you this. Have that s- you're, you're sticking this into their brain. Yeah, through their soft spot. Yeah, uh, yeah. Literally, when I read that, when I was this, I was like, oh, wait, what? The- this this shit turned. That is so sick. Yeah. And so they like brought, I mean, they brought the baby to like doctors and stuff, but they couldn't really come up with an explanation for the death. I'm guessing... I mean, a pin is such a small wound. 
hall. You wouldn't really see it unless you were really looking. Yeah, and it's 1943. Infant mortality is not uncommon. Right. But after this, after losing their child, Melvina and her husband, they started drifting apart. And pretty soon, Melvina began to date a soldier. It's also dirt, like middle of World War II. Oh my god, it is. Yep. So, Melvina is dating this soldier, but Nanny does not like him. She's like, mm-mm, he's not good enough for you. You can go back to your husband. I don't like him. And... Because of this, her relationship with her mom is strained. So one night, she has a real bad fight with her mom. She leaves her son, Robert, with Nanny, and she goes to visit her dad. This is Melvina, Nanny's daughter, doing this. While she's visiting her dad, while her son, Robert, is being cared for by Nanny, Robert's grandma, he mysteriously died. He died that same night? She was watching him? Yeah. Melvina left her son with her mom while she went and, like, visited her dad and stuff. And her son mysteriously dies. What kind of reasoning was given? Like, oh no, he got sick. Uh, The cause of death was asphyxia from unknown causes. And Robert, at this point, he's two. So he died in 1945. He's two years old. So, I, I I don't know. To me, asphyxia from unknown causes sounds suspicious as fuck. But I, maybe it was common if I, there was a, too many blankets in the crib. I don't know. Do two-year-olds still live in cribs? They don't live in them. They sleep in them. But Blankets or he was eating and... I mean... Yeah. But... The fact that there was no incident as far as, like, he's choking and call the police and, like, it's so suspicious. I mean, it is, but it's also one of those things that, from another perspective... Did they not call the police at this time? I don't know. But it's another one of those things that you could look at from the perspective of today and from a not-murder perspective and be like, oh, yeah, today we call that... SIDS, sudden infant death syndrome. Yeah, he wasn't an infant, he was two. I don't know how long SIDS can be at the I mean, that's the thing is I don't I don't know. I know. I also don't know in the forties how common it was for babies and toddlers to just die. Because so far none of these things are like brutal in a way that would obviously show harm and foul play and stuff. They're all just like Oh, they died. Right. Nothing's eliciting suspicion right now. Yeah. But then, two months after Robert's death, Nanny collected a $500 life insurance that she took out on Robert. I didn't know you could take life insurance out on a two-year-old, but apparently you can. I didn't know you could take out life insurance on your grandkid. Apparently you can. So, now we are in... 1945. Robert died on July 7th. Now we're to August. So it's just been a month now. Uh, This is when Japan surrendered to the Allied powers. This ends World War II. And Nanny's husband, Harrelson, he is one of many people who they are out and celebrating. And by celebrating, I mean drinking a fuck ton and becoming monsters. Well, he becomes a monster. Because 
After an evening of drinking a shit ton, he raped Nanny. Oh my god. So the next day, Nanny is in her rose garden, and she finds his, like, whiskey jar that he buried in the ground to hide it from her, because he's a secret alcoholic. I mean, her her husband raping her, she's like, that's the fucking last straw. So she took the jar that, like, had the whiskey in it. Like, he had, it was a full whiskey jar that he'd hidden for, like, I'm gonna drink this later, kind of thing. And she topped it off with rat poison. She's like, you're not gonna do that to me again. And so that evening, he died. And... Is it weird if I feel a little bit like, okay, I get that one. I mean... I'm not saying it's right. I'm kind of feeling the same way. It's not right, but I get it. I will say, okay, I guess the way I want to phrase this, it is not okay. It is not all right. But I understand that reasoning more than any of the others. The others, I saw no reasoning. I saw no understanding. No. This one, I'm like, this is a victim acting out. This, to me, I'm like, this is self-defense. It's self-defense from it happening again. Yeah, this is the one where I was like, honestly... Of all of her murders thus far, this is the only one where I can see any type of reasoning that makes sense yeah you want to know something super fucked up that's gonna make you and all our listeners really angry and i'm sure some of y'all know this stuff uh but this is the 40s this wouldn't have been considered rape i know because they were married it i think it was until the 90s in the u.s where it finally changed to where it was considered rape if you raped your spouse. Because before then, wasn't considered rape. How fucked up is that? It's so fucked up. And what's even more fucked up is you could have literally said, in 2019, it was finally determined that, and I wouldn't have blinked an eye. Yeah. I think that says a lot. I think I wish I had more wine. I have half a glass left, and that is it. And I am nursing this half glass. This episode has been so much more intense than I thought it would be because I'm just going to be totally honest. When you talk about poisonings, sometimes those cases can seem like, oh, uh, okay, not as interesting. But my God, when you go into the details of them, there's so much around why someone poisons now granted mine we have no fucking clue what the why is but still the fact that he was a doctor there's just so many questions well it's it's one of those things where in a lot of true crime cases the shock and i guess drama the gripping part of what you hear is I mean, a lot of times it's the brutality, but when it comes to poisons, it's the passivity. It's the silent killer. Yeah. And it, it instead, you know, on the surface, is it that exciting that like, oh, he ate his dinner and died? No, that's not going to be as intense. That's the word I've been looking for. That's not going to be as intense as someone getting stabbed to death. But then when you go into... All of the different, like, machinations and just all the cogs and gears that go into a poisoning murderer. 
Like, that is where the intensity and everything lies. I mean, how terrifying is it to think about eating dinner and then dying? I mean, <laughs> I live alone, so sometimes I think about, what if I just choked right now? Um, actually, same. And I'm like, am I gonna, like, I would literally hurl my body against the countertop. Self-Heimlich. Yeah, well, your best friend also lives next door to you, so you could hurl yourself against the wall. My walls are soundproof. This apartment building's built real well. I could hurl myself against the walls until the drywall breaks, and they'll be listening to their, like, Mozart and peaceful. I don't want to talk about this anymore. Jump back into your case. Okay, fair. I am. So, anyway, uh, Nanny, husband, her second husband's dead. Good fucking riddance. Uh, but she meets her next husband, her third husband, when she is traveling. She's in Lexington, North Carolina. His name's Arlie Lanning. And within three days of meeting him through another Lonely Hearts column, they get married. Wait, how old is she now? I mean, she she's like in her 40s now. Oh, okay. I was about to say, did she really rack up three before I rack up one? <laughs> Now nah, she she's in her forties because her second marriage they were married for sixteen years. Oh, you said that. I mean, three days. That that is the equivalent today is like getting married after a grinder hookup. <laughs> if you know, you know. <laughs> and I guess she knew, but Lanning he was also an alcoholic. He was a womanizer. He's a shit dude. Shit, she has a type. I know. It's one of those, this is one of those cases where she's a full fucking monster. She's evil, but also. But also, in other ways, in other aspects, I feel for her. Because I'm like, girl, you deserve more. I mean, you deserve jail. But come on. Like, I don't know. I just, I hate it. It's weird. It is really a great example, honestly, of you can have sympathy and, like, judgment and rage for someone at the same time. And that that's not contradictory. No. You can feel bad for a killer and understand that they're a fucking monster. And understand that justice needs to be served. And I think that's something that we don't talk about enough is that... Those feelings are mutually exclusive. You can have them at the same time. Two things yeah. can be true at once. Surprise! So when Nanny is at home with her new husband, she, I mean, she's this doting housewife. On the side, she's disappearing for months on end. Who the fuck knows what she's doing? She didn't say. But when she's home, she is the perfect housewife. And then, one day, suddenly, her husband died of heart failure. Did he, though? Was that why? Well, that's what was reported. But because she had this image and this personality as this perfect housewife whose husband just died suddenly, the whole town came up to her. Like, the whole town went to the funeral to support her. You know, I will say... God forbid someone who just unfortunately happens to be surrounded by death and isn't doing anything because you look like you are. I'm not Oh yeah. I'm not saying that's her case, because we already know she's she is poisoning people. 
but God forbid the person who's not. Well, I mean, shit. Think about uh, Melvina, her daughter. She's in the position of, my stepdad died. My baby died. My other stepdad died. My sisters died. My siblings died. Yeah. Yeah, Like, I mean, she is that person who's surrounded by this and has nothing to do with it. God. True. So, after Arlie's death, pretty soon after that, their house burned to the ground. And the insurance money, Nanny got it. And pretty soon after that, she left North Carolina. But before leaving, Arlie's elderly mom suddenly died in her sleep. Really, Nanny? Why? After leaving North Carolina, Nanny ends up at her sister Dovey's house. Pretty much just as soon as Nanny gets there, Dovey is bedridden and then dies. Are you kidding me? Yeah, she literally murders her husband, burns down the house, murders her mother-in-law, and then is like, Hey sis, I'm visiting. You're dead. Murders her sister. Yeah, she's just on, like, a fucking murdering high at this point. It really is, like, it's almost like this fucking power trip. She's like, I've gotten away with this so many times, I'm going to kill everyone in my wake. Basically. So, then, after that, Nanny moves to Kansas. She meets a guy, Richard Morton, in Emporia, Kansas. And he is also a womanizer. He doesn't have a drinking problem, but... He's a womanizer. He's an asshole. Before she can poison him, though, she poisons her mom because her mom comes to visit them and like, or well, comes to live with them in 1953. And she's like, mom, it's so good to have you here. Have some of this tomato bisque. Kills her. And then three months after that, she kills her husband. At what point is it just like, wait, 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 wait. hold the phone. No. Well, also at the same time, I feel like she doesn't have like that one person that's close to her this whole time because she's killed everyone. She's either killed everyone or killed their children and their loved ones. So they're like, the survivors are like, oh, bitch, no, fuck you. No, no, no. no one. There's no one there to report her. They're all dead. Yeah. So after her mom and her husband die in June of 1953... She met and married a guy named Samuel Doss in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And Samuel's different from her last husband's. He is this clean-cut, church-going guy. He doesn't like these romance novels and stories that she loves, like that's how she relaxes. Other than poisoning and killing people, she relaxes by continuing to read romance novels. Which, at this point, it's the 50s. It's porn. Basically, but also... How many people has she killed at this point? You don't have to answer. It's a lot. It's a lot. We'll get into it soon. Uh, But yeah, he is different from uh, her last husband's. And in September, they married in June. In September, he's admitted to the hospital. He has these, like, flu symptoms. And so at the hospital, they're, like, treating him and stuff. And they diagnose him with just a very severe digestive infection. And so he's treated on October 5th. He's released. And that evening, he dies. Nanny kills him because she had taken two life insurance policies out on him. And I guess there was a time limit. I don't fucking know how life insurance works. 
But I guess there was a time limit, or she was feeling the time limit, because he comes home from the hospital and she's like, oh, baby, here's the tomato bisque. It's rat poison. Nanny. But this, like, his sudden death, like, being released from the hospital, like, you got your antibiotics, you're good to go. It's Oklahoma. They don't talk like that. They talk like this. (laughs) Here's your antibiotics. You're good to go. Here's your antibiotics. You're good to go. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But then he just dies all of a sudden. So his doctor's like, um, excuse me. We're ordering an autopsy. This shit ain't right. It's about time. Yeah, the autopsy reveals a huge amount of arsenic in his body, and pretty much immediately, Nanny is arrested. Uh, also, if there is that much, well, oh no, I was about to say, I, I thought it was from the one dose, but it's not. It's from the multiple doses. So, yeah. I mean, it kind of it kind of sounds like they cut him open and arsenic poured out. Yeah. It's like, oh shit, she's been doing this for a while, and the last one was the kicker. Uh, yep. So, once Nanny's arrested, she confessed to killing four of her husbands, her mom, her sister Dovey, her grandson Robert, and her mother-in-law, uh, Arlie's mom. Didn't confess to all the killings, though. Or all the deaths. Hashtag unconfirmed. Hashtag bitch we suspicious. Hashtag Nanny we know you did it. Yeah. So, the state of Oklahoma centered its case only on Samuel Doss's murder. Well, that was the only one that happened in Oklahoma, right? Yeah. yeah. I bet that's part of why. I, yeah, I think so. Prosecution found her mentally fit for trial, and she pled guilty on May 17th, 1955, and she was sentenced to life in prison. Oklahoma did not pursue the death penalty because she was a woman. This was before the time that they were willing to do that. And yet now Oklahoma is the uh, number one place in the world for the number of women incarcerated. So she's sentenced to life in prison. Yep. She was never charged in any of the other deaths. It's like in my case where they were like, oh, we've got her on one. It's good. And like, God, I know there are reasons, and I know there are a lot of people that oppose the reasons, and because of clerical and administrative bullshit, a lot of trials are not pursued. But it drives me crazy knowing the injustice that is not served. Like, these cases that we know, these victims who don't ever get a say in court, and don't ever get, like, that... That, that sentencing like i know i get it if someone is sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole they're never getting out but that doesn't mean you shouldn't also tack on another hundred years for this victim and this victim and this victim it's not fair no and it's just like yes they're never getting out of prison and you know you can say the argument of like well, we could use these resources and these, uh, you know, court-appointed attorneys and all these people that are working their ass off who don't have the time and resources on other cases that... But no, literally all that tells me is like, yeah, we need to pump more resources and funding into the justice system because the other victims, their families deserve 
justice yes. and deserve closure. They do. Even if it makes her sentence from 150 years to 250 years. And yeah, that doesn't, she not going to live to see the 150. That's not the point. It's not the point. That's exactly it. It is not the point. The point is victims' families seeing justice for the victim. Mm-hmm. Not just being yeah. looped into this mess. Well, they're already in prison, so exactly. And the the argument and idea of like, well, pursuing that would take resources away from these other cases. I'm like, exactly. That's the problem. Let's make more resources. I know. It's not a how do we allocate. It's how do we put more into the fucking system. Let's get more court-appointed attorneys. Let's encourage more young people to go to law school and become lawyers. Let's fund it. Let's make it a thing. Did I say youngsters? <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, well, maybe you did. But I may have said young people, but I don't know. You know... I was passionate. I get what you're saying, because justice is unfortunately extremely difficult to achieve it is Mm -hmm. something that the system is built against for the most part seeing justice the system is built to uh see cases go quickly through and be dismissed and and be settled and cases that actually go to court there, there are so few in like the vast majority of the actual cases out there so I, I know we've talked about this time and time again, but there's so much need for justice reform. I know. It's just justice cannot be a system of allocation. It can't be one of those systems where it's like, well, we did this. And so that covers X, Y, Z. We're good. Check the boxes. We're done. Mm-hmm. Like these are people's lives. Because, yeah, Samuel Doss's family got justice. None of the other victims. Arlie's family didn't get justice for his murder or his mom's murder. None of her other husbands got justice. None of her family got justice for her mom's murder, her two children's murder, her grandchild's murder. None of them got justice. That just, that can't be how it works. No. So, in 1965, after ten years in prison... Nanny died of leukemia in the hospital ward of Oklahoma State Penitentiary. So she also didn't serve anywhere near her full sentence. Nope. In a way. Like, I get it. I'm not trying to be insensitive when I say didn't serve the whole time. But it's also like... But she didn't. She didn't. And she never would because it was many, many years. But also... (laughs) Ten years? In exchange for everything I mean, she did. She got as much time as, like, I don't know, you get for stealing a car with a lenient judge. Exactly. But yeah, that is the case of the serial killer Nanny Doss, also known as the Giggling Granny, which apparently comes from because she was a little, like, I guess she, people described her as, like, crazy or kooky or weird. I don't, I don't, that's the Nick, I'm like, okay, did she giggle a lot? Like, is that a thing? I don't know. Giggling Granny, Lonely Hearts Killer, Black Widow, Lady Bluebeard, Nanny Doss, the serial killer. 
Can I just say we brought it with this poison episode? I mean, I think that I speak for all of us when I say, if not just for the sound quality we have nowadays, all the other things included, this blows episode three out of the water. Oh my god, yes. And if you enjoyed what we brought to the table today, be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. We seriously appreciate your reviews. Those five-star ratings make our days. And if you have another podcast platform that you're listening to and it does have an opportunity to rate or review, please hop on there and do that there as well. Yes. Also, make sure to like and follow us on social media. We are on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Check us out, follow us, look at our pictures, do all the things. Like our pictures, comment on them. I don't know, do all the things. Talk to us. Yeah, if you need human contact, just like we do, reach out, (laughs) say hey. We'll answer. We love y'all. And with that, this is Blood and Wine signing off. XOXO. Bye, you guys. Bye.